Our passage this morning is Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 2 to 26. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you shall take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy them, for there shall be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim shall call out, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remotest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and she who is in labor with child, together. A great company, they shall return here. With weeping, they shall come. And by supplication, I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. And declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. They shall come, and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain, and the new wine, and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. Then the virgins shall rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramoth, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they shall return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall return to their territory. I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. You have chastened, you have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I turned back, I repented, and after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed. And also humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. 
Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly will still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set for yourself road marks. Place for yourself guideposts. Direct your mind to the highway, the way by which you went. Return, O virgin of Israel. Return to these, your cities. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it, the farmer and they who go about with flocks. For I will satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your greatness and your goodness. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you, that your Holy Spirit will guide and direct Thomas. He brings the message to us. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will soften our hearts and that we will be receptive to your word and that we will come to know you in a better and a deeper way and in turn that we will love you more. So, Father, I pray that you will be with us this morning and guide us and may we go out here praising you because of your great goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I'm thankful that we're landing on this passage uh, at this point. Uh, this is this passage is very, very precious uh, in, to me in my heart, and and I hope that it will have a, a genuine impact in your heart. In uh, recent months and in recent years, I've found myself over and over in conversations with believers, with uh, men and women who readily agree that they were lost and dead in their sins, that Jesus Christ is the one who paid the eternal debt of their sins in full and He is the only payment for their sins, and that having been resurrected from the dead, it, his, his righteousness alone that qualifies them to dwell in the presence of God forever. And yet, their own wayward hearts have driven them to a sometimes crippling fear that the promises of God that they once believed with childlike faith may not actually apply to them. If your own wayward heart has ever driven you to that kind of nagging or even crippling uncertainty, I pray that you will hear this morning what God says about Himself. And I want to emphasize that, that you'll hear what God says about himself in this beautiful passage, because our hope and our confidence is not in what he says about his people. It's in what he says about himself. We're going to see in this passage what the everlasting love of God does for his people. The passage begins in Jeremiah 31 verses 2 through 3 with God reminding 
His people of the grace that they once experienced in the wilderness when Israel, quote, went to find its rest. At that first exodus, God brought Israel out of what He called the furnace of affliction in Egypt, the grievous hardship of slavery in Egypt, 400 years of slavery, to make them a people for His own possession and to bring them into the land that He had promised to their forefathers. Here in verse 3, Jeremiah 31.3, He says, Yahweh appeared to him, to Israel, from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you with loving kindness. And the word means steadfast, covenant-keeping love. The word draw in that verse is the same word that God uses in Hosea 11, verse 4, when He says, I drew them with the cords of a man with bonds of love. Song we just sang, bind my heart like a fetter. That's what this is talking about. God drew them. He bound them with cords of love. In both Hosea and Jeremiah, God declares that He bound Israel to Himself. He drew them to Himself with cords of steadfast, covenant-keeping love. And see, all of that is about God. It's about God. Here in Jeremiah 31, verses 4-6, through God goes on to say to Israel, I will build you and you will be rebuilt. He promises them that they will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. And that they will enjoy what they have planted. And he says that through his watchmen, he will call out to Ephraim and Samaria, saying, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to Yahweh our God. When Jeremiah wrote those words, they would have been astonishing to the Judahites that were hearing them. It had been a very long time since Ephraim and Samaria had gone to Zion to worship Yahweh. Ever since the kingdom had been divided after the reign of Solomon around 1000 B.C., the temple of Yahweh that Solomon had constructed resided in Jerusalem in the nation of Judah in the southern, among the southern tribes. But the northern tribes worshipped Yahweh along with their many idols at altars that were scattered all over the land. For a while, the, the tabernacle dwelled in Shiloh in the, in the tribe of Ephraim, in the territory of Ephraim. But then when the tabernacle and later the temple were in Jerusalem, the northern tribes, they, they had altars all over the place. So did the southern tribes, but they had the central sanctuary that they were supposed to go to. Before those northern tribes were carried away into exile by Assyria, Ephraim had become the largest of those tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the word Ephraim is often used in the, in the prophets especially to speak of all of the house of Israel, the northern tribes, as is the case here. And from the days of King Omri, the city of Samaria had been the capital of the northern kingdom. So for God to speak now through Jeremiah of a time when those who dwell, quote, on the hills of Samaria and on the hills of Ephraim 
will go up to Zion, to Jerusalem, to worship Yahweh, that would have been stunning for those who heard these words. And it should be even more stunning for us because so far it's been about 3,000 years since Ephraim and Samaria went to Zion to worship Yahweh. But God promises here that that's going to happen. That Ephraim and Samaria will go up once again to Zion, to Yahweh their God. And the ground upon which that promise is guaranteed in this passage is that God had loved Israel with an everlasting love and had bound them to Himself with that same covenant-keeping love. His everlasting love binds and draws back. And His everlasting love gathers and brings back. In verses 7-11, through God calls His people to proclaim and celebrate even among the, the chiefs of the nations that which God is promising to do for His people. Verse 7 says, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chiefs of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say. The, the imperatives in these verses are, are about making public that which God intends to do. Verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare and say, God is calling everyone in His covenant community and among the nations to hear what He is promising to do for Israel and to proclaim it publicly. And the heart of that promise is in verses 10 and 11. He says, He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Isn't that beautiful? God promises to go after His people. As in the parable that Jesus told of, of the one lost sheep and the perfect shepherd who goes after that sheep and brings it back. He promises to go after His people, to gather them together and to bring them back. A great return of the people of God to the land of promise, back to Himself. The language in this passage in verses 7-11 through is the language of a new exodus. Like the old exodus, only better. Look at the, look at the declarations in verses 7-11. through I am bringing them. I will gather them. A great company. They will return here. I will lead them. I will make them walk and not stumble. At the end of verse 9, is the relationship upon which that promise is grounded and made sure. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. You remember what, what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh back in Exodus chapter 4? You mess with my firstborn, I mess with your firstborn. And God's firstborn was Israel. I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. That's why God will gather what He has scattered. That's why their return to Him is certain. Because of God. Because God declared them to be His children and declared Himself to be their Father. The imperfect, temporary, and partial fulfillment of these promises was experienced by some Judahites 
who were brought back to the land of promise in the days of King Cyrus and others after that. And they experienced the blessing of God's provision and protection in the land for a time. But most of the families of Jacob to whom God made these promises have never seen even a temporary and imperfect fulfillment of them. Beloved, all of the elect, all of the elect, let me back up for just one one second. When you hear that word from me, the word elect, you can understand if you want to that, and this is, this is the case for me. I believe in the sovereign election of God. I believe that God chooses. But when I use that word, I'm not talking about Calvinism versus Arminianism. Because Arminians have been using the word elect for many generations when they're talking about those whom God saves. Those whom God will save. Okay? All of the elect of God from among the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, together with all the elect of God who are not descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will one day realize the perfect and eternal fulfillment of these promises. God will gather what He has scattered and He will draw us to Himself so that where He is, there we may be also forever. In Matthew 24, verses 30 to 31, Jesus said, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. There is a gathering together and bringing back that this whole world will get to behold when God brings His people to the place that He has prepared for them. But here's the point that that we must not miss in the verses of Jeremiah 31 that we're considering this morning. That which guarantees the return of God's chosen people to God has never been the faithfulness of His people. That which guarantees the return of God's people to God has never been the faithfulness of His people. Never. That which guarantees the return of God's chosen people to God has always been the faithfulness of God to His people. You cannot examine the great covenants of the Old Testament and come to any other conclusion than that. And you certainly can't examine the declarations of the New Testament and come to any conclusion other than that. Even the great bilateral covenant of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, which placed many covenant obligations on Israel in order for them to dwell in the land of promise under God's protection and provision, and which declared that they would not dwell in the land of promise under God's protection and provision if they did not keep those covenant obligations, even that bilateral covenant ends up being unilateral. Because God is the one who fulfills its obligations, not man. His people catastrophically failed to fulfill that which the law of Moses required of them, both nationally and individually. Every single person who ever lived under the covenant of law failed to keep the law of God. 
The law was not given to show people how to be good enough for God. It was given to drive people to Christ. The whole point of all the seemingly endless indictments of God against both Israel and Judah in all the chapters leading up to this one in Jeremiah is to expose that catastrophic failure. (laughs) Go look at Romans chapter 3 where Paul says, are we Jews better than those Gentiles? No. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks after God as He must be sought. There is no one good, not even one. Together they have become useless. And then he says, the law has closed every mouth and left every man accountable to God. Because by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But God sent His Son to fulfill every last one of the covenant obligations, every letter and every stroke of every letter of the law of God in the place of His sinful people. And now God says, sing, proclaim, shout from the rooftops. He who scattered Israel will surely gather him and will bring him back and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. God's everlasting love binds and draws back. His everlasting love gathers and brings back. And His everlasting love satisfies with His goodness. In verses 12 to 14, and then again in verses 23 to 25, God speaks of the bounty, of the abundance of the blessings that He will shower upon His ransomed and redeemed people once He has gathered them and brought them back. In verses 12 to 14, He addresses Israel, Ephraim, the northern tribes. And in verses 23 to 25, He addresses Judah, the southern tribes. And listen, listen yet again to what God says about the abundance of blessing that He will bestow on His people in Zion, the place He has prepared for them. Jeremiah 31.12, And they shall come and they shall shout for joy on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the bounty, literally over the goodness of the Lord. Over the grain and the new wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. Then the virgin shall rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. And I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people, my people, will be satisfied with my goodness. My people would, will be satisfied with my goodness. All these these material blessings that God will give to us in that marvelous place are to point us to the giver so that we'll know His goodness. That applies to the blessings He gives us here and now as well. To Judah, verse 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once again they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it. The farmer and they who go about with flocks. For I satisfy, I satisfy the weary ones and refresh 
everyone who languishes. This is God's delight. God loves to lavish His grace upon His people so that we are satiated. We are filled up to overflowing with His goodness. That's what His everlasting love does for His people. His love binds and draws back. His love gathers and brings back. His love satisfies with His goodness. And His love brings hope in sorrow. Until that coming day when God's people will be filled to overflowing with His goodness in the place He has prepared for us. His everlasting love brings hope in the midst of sorrow. In verses 15 to 17, God abruptly turns the attention of Jeremiah's audience from the extravagant blessings of the coming deliverance to the sorrow of their present predicament, of the judgment that they were experiencing from His hand. But He does so in order to point yet again to the marvelous hope of that coming deliverance because that's what will sustain them now. He says, verse 15, A voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, declares the Lord. This work of lamentation and weeping. And they shall return from the land of the enemy. And there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall return to their own territory. Over and over he says, they shall return. Rachel's crying, they're gone. And God's saying, they will return. The reference to Rachel weeping over her lost children goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 35. When Jacob's wife, Rachel the mother of the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, was about to give birth to Benjamin. She was on a journey with her family to get to the town of Bethlehem. And they came to a place called Ramah in the mid-central part of the territory of Benjamin. And Rachel died there giving birth to Benjamin. Much later, about a hundred years Before Jeremiah's day, the Assyrians came down. They had taken most of the Israelites away and they came down in pursuit of the Judahites. And they came as far as the territory of Benjamin in the vicinity of Ramah. And then they cast up, they began to set up to wage a battle against the city of Jerusalem. And you know what happened at that point? Hezekiah cried out to God and God sent an angel in the night and in one night that angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in their sleep. And that was the end of Assyria's efforts to take the city of Jerusalem. But they had taken many, many Israelites and Judahites into captivity all the way down to the region of Ramah. And now through Jeremiah, God promises that Rachel's children shall return from the land of the enemy. God says to Israel, there's hope for your future and your children shall return to their own territory. 
Knowing that that restoration is coming gives hope to God's people in the midst of sorrow. And the perfect fulfillment of that promise of restoration gives hope to us, whether Jew or Gentile. Because God's going to gather and restore. And He is going to bring us to the place He has prepared. Verses 18-22 to record a deeply personal and impassioned conversation between God and Ephraim. Ephraim addresses Yahweh in verses 18 and 19, and then Yahweh addresses Ephraim in verses 20 to 22. This is one of the most revealing and piercing passages in the whole Bible when it comes to understanding how the hearts of God's wayward people actually get turned back to Him. In verse 18, Ephraim cries out to God in grief because of God's painful chastising judgments that they were right in the midst of still. He says to God, you've chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained calf. The image of an untrained calf speaks of a calf that's unaccustomed to to a yoke. A calf that starts out not knowing how to follow the lead of its owner. That's how Ephraim describes himself. An untrained calf. And then comes Ephraim's earnest request of God at the end of verse 18. And it was my beloved mother-in-law, Virginia Obrey, that told me to look up the Greek in this verse, the Hebrew in this verse a long time ago. And I looked it up. And it literally says, Ephraim cries out to God and says, God, turn me that I may be turned. God, You turn me that I may be turned. For You are Yahweh, my God. Do you get the importance of that? Ephraim saying to God, I'm like an untrained calf. I'm unable to rightly respond to You, God, but You are Yahweh, my God. You have to be the One who puts me under Your yoke. You have to be the One who turns me back to You. And then God answers Ephraim. And his answer is beyond marvelous. And God says, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. Declares the Lord. And then in verses 21 and 22, God calls out to Ephraim and He says, direct your heart to the highway, the way by which you went, and come back. Return, O virgin of Israel. Can you imagine? Return, O virgin of Israel. He's speaking to people who had turned away into idolatry. And He called them adulterers. And He says, return, O virgin of Israel. Return to these your cities. And then he says, how long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. Now, if you came hoping that I was going to explain the last part of verse 22, you're out of luck. I can't find two commentators who agree on how to interpret that. If you want my two cents... Uh, See me afterward and I'll give it to you because it's only worth two cents. 
What I do want to show you is Hosea chapter 11 because the connection between that passage and this one is striking. Hosea 11, listen, verses 8 through 11. It's God talking to Ephraim again. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They, Ephraim, will walk after Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares Yahweh. And then look at the next verse. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. So, who's faithful and who's not faithful in that paradigm? God's people are not, but God is. Does the promise in verses 8 through 11 get negated by the declaration in verse 12? It does not. God passionately declares His unwavering faithfulness toward Ephraim in spite of their persistent unfaithfulness toward Him. He says, For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. What's the logic behind that statement? I think it's simple. God does not react to men. Not even His own covenant people. God loved Israel, He said, with an everlasting love. With covenant-keeping love. He bound them to Himself, himself with cords of His steadfast, ever-faithful covenant love. And that love, friends, does not change. Even when the one who is loved by it does change. If we don't understand this about God, we haven't even begun to truly know the God of the Bible. God does not react to men. You notice I didn't use the word respond. God does not react to men. His actions are not based on our actions. His actions were decreed from eternity past. And in Him there is no variation or shadow of turning. In Jeremiah's day, it appeared to Jeremiah that God's painful, chastising judgment against His people wasn't working. God Himself decreed at the end of Jeremiah 6, the bellows blow fiercely, the lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, but the wicked are not separated. It appeared that the chastising judgment of God wasn't working. Israel and Judah were still like untrained calves. Not only would they not follow the yoke, they declared that the yoke was going to be removed long before God intended to remove the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar from their neck that he put there. They still weren't getting the point. They weren't responding. The judgment would go on for a while. Seventy years. This judgment. And it would be painful. But guys, the outcome, the outcome was never in question. God would turn His people back to Himself. He who scattered would absolutely gather. 
and bring back. This entire exchange between God and Ephraim is prophetic. The repentance and return of Ephraim to Yahweh hasn't happened yet, but it will. Because God will make it happen just as He promises right here. God will gather up and bring back His wayward people. Whatever your view of eschatology of end times is, there is a lesson in this passage, beloved, that that we, I pray with all my heart, we don't walk away without reckoning with this morning. And it is that we are utterly dependent on God to turn our hearts back to God. And for all whom God has made His own, that turn is certain. In 1 Corinthians 11, I mentioned this last week, there were people treating the Lord's table as an opportunity for gluttony and drunkenness. And he said, Paul said, for this reason some among you are weak and some are sick and a number of you sleep, meaning some of you have already been killed by God. You've lost your life, your physical life. And he says, when we are judged, we are disciplined by God in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. God's chastisement of His people, just like He said in Jeremiah 30, of His people is not to destroy. It is to chastise. It is to restore. It's to bring back. And that's gracious. But the great lesson of this passage is that it's not we who turn our hearts back. It's God who turns our hearts back. It won't be our resolve It won't be the quality of our faith that fixes our waywardness when we are wayward. It will be the everlasting, steadfast, covenant-keeping love of God that goes after and brings back. In the very last verse of this passage, verse 26, Jeremiah writes these beautiful words. He says that this I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. This is the weeping prophet. This book is littered with Jeremiah's lamentations. And there's a book after it that's called Jeremiah's Lamentations. He says, I awoke and I looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. When Jeremiah beheld the promise of God to bind and gather and return his people to himself. His sleep was pleasant. And yours can be too. Jeremiah had heard and he had faithfully proclaimed warning after warning of impending judgment from the hand of God upon Israel and Judah. (laughs) He had heard that the wound of God's judgment against them was incurable. Now he heard and proclaimed promise after promise that God Himself would cure that incurable wound (laughs) and that He would go after His people and He would bring them back to Himself to renewed relationship and extravagant blessing in the land that He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this marvelous restoration would include not only Judah, but Ephraim, the families of Jacob who had not been seen for a century since they had been taken away into captivity. Indeed, people from all the families of Jacob would return to Yahweh. And people from all the families of the earth will return 
to Yahweh. This people whom God had indicted for generation after generation because they were relentlessly stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious against Him, the elect from among those people would be returned to God. And the greatest news of all, the promise that now made Jeremiah's sleep pleasant, was that Yahweh is the one who would make them return. See, if God said to you and me, you'll get to come back to me when your resolve is strong enough. You'll get to come back to me when when you have the strength of faith to come back and stick. Would that make your sleep pleasant? It wouldn't make mine pleasant. But when God says, I'm going to go get you and I'm going to bring you back to me and I'm going to lavish my blessings upon you and I'm going to put you in the place that I prepared for you so that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in your midst forever. That makes my sleep pleasant. God's dealings with His covenant people in the Old Testament reveal a pattern and a promise for how He deals with His covenant people now. I'm not saying they're the same people. I'm not saying it's the same covenant. I am saying that the covenant promises in each generation of God's people find their ultimate perfect fulfillment in Christ alone. God's everlasting covenant-keeping love never changes. We change. He doesn't. If you belong to Christ through faith in Him alone, then the same steadfast covenant love of God that will turn the heart of Ephraim and Judah back to Himself will turn your heart back to Himself every time you turn away from Him. And that same covenant-keeping love will soon bring you and me and all of His beloved children into that place that He has prepared. Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul said, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you (laughs) will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you live each day in the confidence that God will finish what He started in you? Individually? And in His church corporately? Or do you live, I've asked this question before, do you live as if it's up to you to finish what God started? Is Jesus indeed the author and finisher of our faith or is He the author and we're the finisher? It makes a difference. (laughs) Because God is the perfect shepherd who never loses one single sheep but goes after every last one of them and brings them back to Himself and keeps them for Himself, what must our constant prayer for ourselves be? What must our constant prayer for our brothers and sisters be day by day? You turn me, Lord, that I may be turned. You turn me. I say it again as David said in the last two verses of Psalm 139. Lord, You seek me and know my heart. You try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There is a Christmas connection in this passage and I'm just about done. Matthew chapter 2, not long after the birth of Jesus, Matthew records King Herod's execution of all the male children from two years old 
and under who lived in or around the town of Bethlehem where Jesus was born, where Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Herod executed those boys because he had heard from three magi from the east that one called the Christ, the long-prophesied king of the Jews, was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Herod killed all those male children in an effort to ensure the death of one child, Jesus. Matthew writes that Herod's action fulfilled the words spoken of through Jeremiah the prophet in this passage, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But we know the rest of the story. Herod had not succeeded in killing the one who would bring the restoration of Israel and of sinners from every nation of mankind to God. The one who fulfilled the law of God in our place perfectly. The one who died to pay the eternal debt of our sin and who, who covers us with His righteousness. The perfect Savior whose perfect salvation saves to the uttermost all of those who trust in Him alone. <laughs> the Good Shepherd who never loses a sheep but goes after and brings back and keeps forever. Beloved, He is our joy and our strength. He is our confidence. He is our confidence. He is the one who makes our sleep pleasant. Let's trust Him, not us. As a closing prayer, I'm going to read and slightly revise a verse of the hymn that we sang at the beginning Come thou fount of every blessing. And then I'm going to add the fourth verse that we didn't sing that a lot of people don't know. And I'd like for you in your own heart to pray this back to God. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Your goodness, Lord, like a fetter, has bound my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But You, Lord, You took my heart and sealed it. You sealed it for Your courts above. And then the last verse, On that day <laughs> when freed from sinning, I shall see Your lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing Your sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send your angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. In Jesus' name, amen.